Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Howard David Live. We welcome in Ryan Dunleavy, the New York Post, covering the New York Jets. Uh, Jet fans are funny, Ryan, and you know this. My uh, doctor is a, is a nut job Jet fan. I walk in the other day for a routine appointment and he starts giving me all the Aaron Rodgers is going to rupture his Achilles. He's shut up. <laughs> it's only June. But my grandson isn't any better. I mean, he's a huge Jet fan. He says, uh, you know, something's going to happen wrong because they're used to it. They're, con they're conditioned. They haven't been to the playoffs since, what, 2010? Uh, I, I, it's it's hard to put it in words, but I mean, you're around the Jet organization. Aaron Rodgers probably has been the most impactful Jet to arrive on the scene since Joan Namath. Got anybody that fits between? I mean, the natural comparison is Brett Favre, but he didn't arrive with quite the hoopla. Um, but remember, he had he had led the Packers to within an interception of by Corey Webster of the Giants of leading them to the Super Bowl the year before he arrived with the with the uh, Giants. So he was still playing at a high level. He didn't have quite the hoopla. And it didn't feel like his heart was in it. Like it feels like Aaron Rodgers is motivated. Um no, I would say no. I would. I mean, obviously, Darrell Revis was a Hall of Fame player, but there wasn't a hoopla when he arrived. Uh, no, I would say probably since Namath, it's the quarterbacks. Obviously, the you know you get boosted if you're a quarterback because of what it means. So yeah, I would say probably since Namath, the most impactful acquisition they've made. I mean, there is a lot of that, like your doctor said, same old Jets mentality within the fan base that they're racing for the other shoe to drop. But I don't sense any of that around the team. I mean, you, you got to remember, this is a very young team with a third-year coaching staff, a fourth-year GM. They haven't really experienced any of that same old Jet stuff. So uh, maybe maybe some people in the front office who've been there a long time have, but it certainly hasn't penetrated the locker room. A lot of conversation now about the NFL wanting the Jets to be on hard knocks. Uh, would this be a good thing for the Jets, or do they not need that kind of attention at this stage. I don't think it's really any something that anybody welcome. Maybe the Cowboys welcome it. Uh, I don't. I don't think it's really something anybody 
uh welcomes so i don't would it be a good thing i, I mean I, I don't think it's a good thing right i mean it's a good thing for jets fans to, it's a good thing for media to see how things work behind the scenes get access that really nobody else gets besides team employees um but for the team no i mean it's just uh it you know it just it's it's treated like a distraction by coaches and by players is it a distraction? I don't know. I mean, like I said, they, they have team cameras in their face all the time nowadays. Like you know, every team meeting, you see these post-draft videos where everything's said in the war room goes socialized. So like they're used to being recorded and, you know, not having much privacy. I guess it's just another example of like, but you know what, you know what, Aaron, they can't not expect it. I mean, they, they acquired Aaron Rodgers. They have the two, the offensive rookie of the year and the defensive rookie of the year. They have a megastar who they can't agree to a whole uh, contract with in Quinn and Williams. They are a dramatic franchise, and that's what Hard Knocks looks for. So it can't really be a surprise to them. They have all the elements that Hard Knocks wants, all the drama they want. Uh, they And they put themselves in that position. I mean, if they agreed to a contract with Quinn and Williams, that'd be less, one less storyline. If their quarterback was you know, out of Matt Ryan instead of Aaron Rodgers, that'd be less interesting. So they've made themselves interesting, which I guess is certainly better than 11 years of irrelevancy. You talked about the youth, uh, and you mentioned Garrett Wil- uh, Garrett Wilson. You've got Corey Davis. You've got Randall Cobb. you got McCole Hartman. Uh, uh, you've got uh, Lazard, former Packer. I mean, the wide receiver room is pretty deep. And then you throw in the two tight ends, uh, Ozuma and and uh, and Conklin, you got yourself a pretty solid group. But the big question, as you well know, is the offensive line. How solid can that be? And we know how important it has to be. Oh yeah, I mean, I think that's as big a key as you know as Aaron Rodgers staying healthy. Really, I mean, that you're talking about a group that has three unsettled starters: center, left tackle, and right tackle. People just assume that. Uh, whoever doesn't win the left tackle battle, Dwayne Brown or Makai Becton is going to slide over to right tackle. I'm certainly not sure that that's the case. I mean, that's unfair to whoever is taking the right tackle reps, um, whether that be Billy Turner or Max Mitchell. Uh, you're just going to have them play first team right tackle for two weeks, and then they're going to go to the bench and the loser of the left tackle battle is going to be the right tackle. I'm not so sure about that. Plus, you have guys, Becton's coming off two straight years of injuries. Uh, Elijah Vera Tucker's coming off injury. Dwayne Brown's coming off so- shoulder surgery. So, like, even the even the, the stalwarts, like Elijah Vera Tucker, well, there's injury question now. Even Connor McGovern was a three-year starter at center. Well, he could lose the job to rookie Joe Titman. So, late, Lankin Tomlinson is probably the one guy you pencil in as a definite starter, and he wasn't very good last year. So, uh, no, the offensive line is definitely as big a key as any for the Jets this season. Well, and who knows that better than Aaron Rodgers? Uh, people say, well, you know, what are the expectations? My question is, how long can you expect to see Aaron Rodgers in a Jet uniform? One year? Two years? I mean, is he going to go to Tom Brady at 44 years old? We don't know this. But the offensive line has got to be a big concern to Aaron Rodgers. I think Tom Brady's, excuse me, I think Aaron Rodgers is going to play as long as he's having fun. So like if the Jets are winning, if, if they're, I don't know, 11 and six and get to the, 
you know, second round of the playoffs and lose a nail biter to Patrick Mahomes. I don't think that Aaron Rodgers is going to retire. No, I don't. I think he'll be back for another year with the Jets. If this is an unmitigated disaster where the line can't protect him and he's running for his life and they go seven and 10. Yeah. I think it could be a one year thing. I think as the wins go, as the fun goes, as the stats and uh, success goes, I think that'll determine how long it goes, but it's clear. I think this much is clear already, Howard. He loves New York, right? He love he's going to Broadway. He's going right. to Knicks games. He's right. going to the Tonys. He <laughs> he is all about everything that this city has to offer. So I don't think he's in a rush to le- to move out of New York. Well, you know, it's nothing different than Green Bay. I mean, Green Bay's got bingo. They've got bratwurst. Uh, doesn't it's about the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk, Ryan. Talk about Ryan Dunleavy, the New York Post, about the Jets. The the other unknown factor is the schedule in the first half of the year is pretty damn rough, starting out with the Monday night game against the Buffalo Bills. And it's about survival here. You've got the Jets, you've got the Cowboys in Dallas, you host the Patriots, they have the uh, the Chiefs, they've got the Broncos, the Eagles, and, and the Giants. Second half of the year, not as demanding. So I don't want to put a number on it, but just for fun, if they get through the first eight weeks of the season and they've got five wins, that would bode well for them, don't you think? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, w- I was thinking, as I listened to you rattle that off, I was thinking four and four. Because you, you got to remember, I mean, even with training camp and OTAs, there's still going to be a adjustment period once the real game start of – Aaron Rodgers getting on the same page with his receivers and Hackett calling the right plays. And there's still going to be all that newness, familiarity adjustment that has to happen. So I I wouldn't expect them, you know, I think they're going to probably lose one or two close games before they start winning the close games. So uh, yeah, I would think even four and four after the first eight bodes well for them, because uh, as long as they're healthy, that's obviously the key to any team because then the schedule softened up, softens up and then they'll be much more comfortable with each other. There's a lot of moving parts coming into this team. Hey, Ryan, I think you could make a case for the AFC East being as tough a division, uh, one through four, as there is in the league. I mean, every game, it's not a, there's no gimmies in this division. I mean, you start out with Buffalo. I believe there's a lot of pressure on Buffalo. I don't think they're as good as right? they've been. I don't think they're as good as they've been. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. So there's a lot of pressure on them to win. You start out with a Monday night game at home for the Jets. Uh, that's not. That's a rough way to start, but it could be worse. You could be starting in Buffalo. The fact that, I mean, I heard Mike Tannenbaum, the former Jets general manager and Dolphins uh, president, he said something the other day that shook me. He said, if the Patriots get DeAndre Hopkins, they're going to be the best team in the AFC East. And I looked at it and I went, Somebody putting something in Mike's coffee? I mean, really? Uh, DeAndre Hopkins is a really good receiver, but one player is not going to take the Patriots from fourth in the division to the top. I I put Buffalo, the Jets, and Miami ahead of New England, and I don't even have to worry about being criticized. No, I would do the same thing. The one thing is, obviously, they have the best head coach of the four, and – I think that, but they also have the most quarterback questions of the four. So that kind of balances out. I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Jets, if the Patriots don't come in fourth, I'll pick them fourth, but I might pick them fourth at, you know, eight, nine, 
and I might pick first place in the division at, I don't know, 11 and seven, so, or 11 and six. So we're not talking about a huge gap here. Like the way people talked about the AFC West last year was like the all time greatest division. All four teams could make the playoffs. And obviously that didn't come to fruition, uh, partly because the best team, the Chiefs, is so good. I don't know that any, like I said, I think the Bills will take a step back. I think all three of these teams are good. Um, I don't see that the Jets, the Dolphins, or the Bills as a 14-win team. So if 11 wins the division, eight could certainly be last. I don't think there's a huge top-to-bottom separation. I talked before about the wide receiver room and how deep it was. The one player that I'm intrigued with is Hardman from Kansas City. Because not only is he a, a good wide receiver, but he's a kick returner, which they needed when Berrios went away. Yeah, uh, he's never really been able to stay healthy. He's a huge speed guy. Um, he's kind of the forgotten guy. I'm glad you mentioned him, Howard, because there's the returning guys, Garrett Wilson, who I think is primed to be one of the five best receivers in the NFL this year. I will, if he stays healthy, he's going to ascend to that level that's right under Tyree Kill and Justin Jefferson. He'll be right there, and Devontae Adams. He'll be right there as probably like the fourth best guy. And uh, then there's – so he returns, Corey Davis returns, and then they have the two Packers guys, Cobb and Lazard, and the guy who's kind of forgotten in there is Hardman, who, like you said, is kind of an intriguing player. He's kind of been a gadget guy. Uh, he's got great speed. He's been hurt a lot. You said he could be a returner. Uh, I don't know that he'll be like a number one or number two receiver, but it wouldn't surprise me if at the end of the year you're looking at the Jets highlight reel and McCall Hardman as three or three or four of the biggest plays. Look, we, we talk about Garrett Wilson with, with raves, and justifiably so. Uh, but then you look at Cobb and Lazard, and Rodgers is familiar with these guys. So you wonder early on in the year if he goes where he's comfortable rather than – I mean, Garrett Wilson is going to be the guy, but you wonder how that – where Corey Davis fits in uh, and Hardman. You got a guy like Rodgers that's got – like any quarterback, he's comfortable with the guys he knows. It's a great point. I asked Garrett Wilson about this the other day, and I wrote about it in in uh, our newsletter, Post Sports Plus, for uh, members and subscribers to our to our to the New York Post. And I wrote about this because I asked Garrett Wilson that very question. So I'm glad you brought it up. I said, uh, "It's great to have Cobb and Lazard here because the pro to that is they're like coaches in the room, and they can teach the other guys. And all that's true, right? Like." All that's true that they they're like coaches and they're you know they're mentoring the other guys and you know extra playbook time. The flip side of that is exactly what you said. On fourth and six in week two, is Rogers going to defer to his comfort level of Lazard when the ball should really go to Garrett Wilson because he's the best player on the team? So we won't really know that until that situation pops up. Rogers is no fool. I'm sure he recognizes Garrett Wilson is his best player. He's already compared him to Devonte Adams and said he could soon be the best receiver in the league. So he, re he hasn't said that about Lazard or Cobb. So he knows Garrett Wilson's talent level, but yeah, I mean, I do think that's a very real possibility guys defer to what they know. And I think early in the season, uh, those guys could be ahead of him. Garrett Wilson said, uh, it puts the right amount of pressure on us to mm. on the rest of us to learn the playbook. And I thought that was a great quote. Uh, it puts the right amount of pressure. So he's not saying anything controversial. He's not worried about it, but he realizes what I realize and what you realize, which is the other guys are ahead of him. 
So he better learn the playbook so that the ball does come to him. It puts the right amount of pressure on the rest of us. He's Ryan Dunleavy of the New York Post. I remember asking quarterbacks, a few of them, I asked Brett Farr when he was with the Jets uh, about the use of tight ends. And he said, if you are a quarterback worth your salt, you're going to rely on your tight ends because a lot of time they're the first guy who's going to come open. So you, you got Azuma, you got Conklin. Once again, you got a lot of depth at the receiver position, including the tight ends. Yeah, I mean, the Jets are very, very invested in tight end. I mean, they gave Uzama, I don't know, you, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. I want to say $36 million. They gave Conklin $20 million. They used a third round pick on Ruckert. They used a seventh round pick on Zach Kuntz. So, like, they're very invested in tight ends. Aaron Rodgers has not been overly invested in tight ends in his right. career. Right. Uh, there early in his career, he had your Michael Finley. That was a good connection. There was a year a couple years ago where Robert Tunyon had like 11 touchdown catches, but not a ton of yards. He was really just like a goal line threat. Uh, is that because he hasn't had great tight ends or is that because uh, he doesn't use, utilize the tight end? I don't know. It's obviously in his career, he's preferred the Jordy Nelson, the Randall Cobb slot receiver, and then the Devonte Adams. Uh, but if anybody, for all the talk about Sauce Gardner buddying up to uh, Aaron Rodgers, if anybody is living in Aaron Rodgers' pocket, it's C.J. <laughs> Uzama. So uh, maybe after his disappointing year last year, he realizes the best way to to uh, to get the ball on the field is to be with this guy off the field because they seem almost inseparable right now. So uh, maybe that's a good sign for C.J. Uzama's ball production. If we have one question about the the running back room. It's Brees Hall. When he was on the field before that bad injury last year, he looked spectacular. Uh, so you, you would hope that if he is ready and healthy, you've got him, you got Carter, you got Zonovan Knight. So now why any discussion about Dalvin Cook? Uh, for two reasons. Number one, I know he's a terrific back, but it seems like he's headed to Miami. Couple of, yeah, a couple of things. One, you can keep him from Miami if you sign him. So that's there's always that level of rivalry. Two, the Jets are clearly building what amounts to a super team. Like, who wants to come play with Aaron Rodgers? That's clearly their thought process here. So why not at I, I think the Vikings are crazy for releasing Devin Cook. I'm, it's well known that I'm a running backs guy. I like talented players. I don't care what position you play. So uh I think they're nuts for releasing Dalvin Cook. I think he can still play a four-time Pro Bowler. You can't get that just anywhere. So, uh, and then to mention it, I mean, you don't know for all the Brees Hall, all the Jets want to put out there that Brees Hall's ahead of schedule and looks great. That might be true. That's what the Giants told us about Saquon Barkley two years ago. Mm -hmm. And he was not uh, himself his first year back from an AC budget. He was terrific last year. He was not. Uh, anywhere near that in 2021, his first year back from an ACL. Adrian Peterson won an MVP like 10 months after an a ACL repair. So they're not all the same. You just don't know what Brees Hall is going to be. And I guess Dalvin Cook could be an insurance policy that maybe you use him a little bit as a slot receiver, or maybe you split the carries and save some of Brees' legs for later in his career. I, I can see, I can see why they're interested. I just don't know why Dalvin would be interested if he can get a full-time job somewhere else. You mentioned Quinnen Williams, and that's a big key uh, to his return. But aside from that, I mean, you're looking at the fifth ranked defense last year. 
that's not a bad way to start. Uh, so I, uh, let's put a, let's put a caveat in there, Howard. They played a lot of backup quarterbacks last year. A lot. I mean, I, I think they were two and seven Costello, my, uh, the, the Jets beat writer for us has a stat in one of his recent stories. You'd have to look at, I believe they were two and nine against starting quarterbacks and maybe five and one against backup quarterbacks. So a little of that is inflated by they played, a, they played, you know, whoever the Dolphins third stringer was a couple times. And they play, they played Jacoby Brissett. Like they play, played a lot of backup quarterbacks. So um, now look, they are very talented on defense. I mean, there's no denying that. I mean, you have sauce Gardner, CJ Mosley and Quinn and Williams. That might be the best three, one player at each of the three levels. If you did that across the NFL, I mean, that might be the best trio across the NFL. So, uh, but you got to get Quinn and Williams signed. He, he's going to play. It's not like a Saquon Barkley situation where Saquon's not under contract. Quinn and Williams is under contract, but he's unhappy. It'd be wise to get that deal done sooner rather than later. Uh, And then, like I said, the secondary, I think is an area where the jets are, going to have to rely early in the season as other things as the offensive line gels and Rogers gels with his receiver. And we see what happens with Quinnen and linebacker. They have to break in a new guy to replace Quan Alexander. It's probably Jamie and Sherwood secondary is the place you look at and say, this team should be really good. I mean, uh, uh, why is the guy's name escaping sauce Gardner and the other guy, uh, DJ, DJ Reed sauce Gardner right. and DJ Reed. Right. are one of the five to six best corner combinations. Michael Carter had a fantastic year as a nickel corner, doesn't get nearly enough credit. Uh, Jordan Whitehead's a solid free safety. And then you you see how much emphasis they put on the position in the secondary. They know that's where they need to win game because they replaced LaMarcus Joyner with Chuck Clark. And then as soon as Chuck Clark got hurt, like within hours, they signed Adrian Amos. So they're not messing around with let's plug in a UFA here. Yeah, the uh, the, uh, the part of a defense is one that can create turnovers and create opportunities, and you do that with a good pass rush. Do they have a good enough pass rush? If Quinn and Williams is there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If Quinn and Williams is there, uh, he's the best of the best for them. So if he's there, they do. If he's unhappy or injured or holding in rather than holding out, then no, they don't. But if they have him, and then then they do the Robert Sala eight defensive linemen, two waves of four, keep your fresh legs. Then I think guys like Jermaine Johnson or Carl Lawson or the, Will McDonald, I think they can get their pressures in, uh, in spots. I think it's Quinn and Williams and depth is basically what it is. I don't think they have another 10 sack guy besides Quinnen. But if you have Quinn and getting his 10 and a bunch of guys getting, forget even sacks, just pressures, 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 then I think they have enough. Well, here we are talking about football at the end of June, approaching July. And last night, the Yankees had a perfect game, which was the biggest news. I, was, I, I read Mike Vaccaro's article uh, today. Uh, it's amazing that here's a Mets team that's so far out of, out of the playoffs right now that all of a sudden the Yankees and what, what uh, Herman did last night was, I mean, consider the last two starts before yesterday, he gave up 15 runs. All of a sudden, he gets 27 up, yeah. 27 down. I, it was yeah. incredible. Yeah, like Mike wrote, that can only happen in baseball. You don't really get the third-string quarterback or the eight and the fourth receiver doesn't usually have a 250-yard game. The the you know the 
the uh, second string quarterback doesn't really, you know, it's almost like what Mike White did when he threw for like 450 yards against the Bengals. That's like the quarterback equivalent of a perfect game. Um, So it just doesn't really happen. It's a baseball thing where you can, where you can look so bad and for so many games and then all of a sudden it all comes together. That's, that's kind of a romanticism of baseball thing. And I was lucky enough to be a teenager in the stands at David Cohn's perfect game. Uh, I've never forgotten that. So it was cool to watch another one last night on TV. Well, I'm a little older than you are, but as a little boy growing up in Brooklyn and an avid Dodger fan, uh, I happened to come home from grade school uh, the day that Don Larson threw the perfect game Uh on October the 8th, 1956. And I walked in just as Dale Mitchell was coming in to the batter's box as a pinch hitter. And I'm watching, I don't know what's going on. I just walked in, put the TV on, the game was still going on. And he strikes out, and I'm watching Yogi Berra jump yeah. on top of Don Larson. And perfect game, really. And, you yeah. know, I mean, Larson was an okay pitcher, but he wasn't great. So what he did was, I mean, he he established history, not only a perfect game, but a perfect game in the World Series. Yeah, yeah, that's what ma- that's what makes it unique, the World Series aspect. Because we've seen guys, there are worse guys than Dem- Domingo Herman's probably, a, I don't know, maybe a slightly above 500 pitcher for his career. Right. Probably has like, 30, 35 wins, something like that. We've seen worse pitchers than that. Former Met prospect Phil Umber threw a perfect game. <laughs> now you're reaching. <laughs> Appreciate your insight, Ryan. Thanks a million. I think it's going to be an interesting year. Uh, and one thing that, that writers and broadcasters look forward to is to cover a team that is relevant. And the Jets look like they're going to be relevant. I definitely think they're going to be relevant. I I would I would say they're going to end their playoff drought this year. I don't think they're a Super Bowl team, but I believe they're a playoff team. Would that be enough to satisfy the Jets faithful? Win, get get into the playoffs or win a game? Yeah, I think win a game. They saw that they saw a team like the Giants that's not as good as they are, as talented as they are win a playoff game last year. So I think, you know, that first playoff game will probably be home or at the chargers or the Ravens or somebody like that. There's no reason you can't beat that team before running into one of the superpowers like the uh, chiefs. Appreciate your insight, Ryan. Thanks a million. You stay safe. Thanks. See you, Howard. Ryan Dunleavy of the New York post who covers the New York jets, uh, a very interesting uh, scenario that is going on uh, with that jet organization. Uh, Look, (laughs) <laughs> I live with Jet. My daughter's a season ticket holder. It's you live and die with the Jets, mostly die. And you just wonder, uh, you know, is this um is this gonna be the year they finally crack it and get into the playoffs for the first time since uh 2010? Do I think they're gonna get into the playoffs? Yeah, I do. Do I think they can go deep into the playoffs? Yeah, I do, with a caveat, and that is. As And as the offensive line goes, so goes Aaron Rodgers. He's got the weapons around him. He can find wide receivers just walking into the wide receiver room. He can find running backs. Uh, if, if Dalvin Cook uh, winds up being a Jet, so much the better. But the key is the offensive line. There is no question about that. But you know, we'll see how it all shakes out. Uh, I, uh, I, I was talking to Ryan about... Um, I was talking to Ryan. Let me just make sure that we got our next guest prepped and ready to go. I believe he should be. 
And we'll check in with Brian Geltseiler of Sirius XM NBA Radio in a moment, even though it is during the offseason, there's so much talk going on uh, about the NBA, uh, you know, obviously about the NFL. And here we are in the middle of baseball season. And in New York, you've got story after story, and most of it's negative until last night. These things happen. These things happen. Uh we we move on and we and we think about what is happening and we wonder uh, what the NBA is going to produce and all the conversation about players moving from here to there and star players. Is this guy going to be here? Is this guy going to be there? We don't really know. But we uh, we think that things are going to remain status quo. When it comes to James Harden as an example, do I think he's back in Philadelphia? That's going to be an intriguing question. I think it all goes about James Harden's really sitting there. He's got the option. He's got to exercise it tonight. So he's got a player's option. That's fine. What does it do so far as Joel Embiid is concerned? Tyrus Maxey, uh, do you make a move to, to let Harden walk? Do you sign and trade him? Um, would they be better off without Harden? Let's face one thing. Harden has been a very good regular season player. But the last couple of postseasons, he has not done the job. That's got to be a major concern. And now you got a new head coach in Philadelphia in Nick Nurse. Uh, is he going to be an improvement over Doc Rivers? Well, only, only we're guessing right now uh, as to whether or not he will be. But we'll get some answers from Brian Geltseidler of SiriusXM. NBA radio, who uh, give us his opinions, which I value. And there he is as we speak. Oh, Gouts, how are you? Good, Howard, how are you? I can't complain. So if you're, you're tonight, uh, James Harden's got to make up his mind, right? He's got the option. What do you think? Uh, I My inclination is that he will decline the option, go into free agency, and then re-sign a deal to stay with the Sixers. Yeah, I think okay. he's looking for more money than what he got last year. I think they're going to be willing to work with him. Um, listen, right now, everybody's in the the Dame Lillard holding pattern, but I think the Sixers have to be realistic and understand that unless they're willing to part with Therese Maxey, which I wouldn't if I were them, and I don't think they are, right. that they're probably not major players in this Lillard sweepstakes. And it, as much as Sixers fans don't want to hear this, there is a little bit of a value to running it back. You do have a new coach. Um and again, I don't think just because they re-sign Harden means they're, they're locked into coming back with the same team. There are options out there. You know, Tobias Harris has an expiring deal. But I, I also say this, I'd be careful how disposable I treat Tobias Harris because he was really, really good in that Boston series and guarded Jason Tatum very well. Mm -hmm. And I think Harris has kind of evolved into a different kind of role with this team that is somewhat of a vital one. So it, you know, Daryl Morey can be very creative and it may be that the Sixers changes are on the margins and there's not a major change with one of their three or four best players. So a lot of different things in play here, but listen, if one thing I will tell you is this, that if Harden does uh, not opt out and take and exercises that option for year two, he certainly made some kind another wink, wink deal with Daryl Morey to help them improve the roster going forward for this year. All right, if I say to you that James Harden was a good regular season player last year, not so much in the playoffs, can you refute that? 
No, I think that's fair. Listen, one thing I will say about him in the playoffs, and and this is, it's really typical of who he's been historically, Howard, which is that he had some fantastic games in the playoffs. I mean, he had, what, 51 points in game one uh, without Joel Embiid of the Boston series, and, and Philly stole one in there. I, it was fantastic. So he's had those moments. The problem that I have with him is down the stretch in game six where he turnovers, hesitant to take shots, but yet not finding Joel Embiid, ball dominant, you know, that kind of stuff. And then just kind of just how bad he was in game seven. And, and you know, I like James Harden. I think that he still has a lot to offer as a player. But I think the biggest problem you have with James Harden is that he's not, not self-aware enough to realize he's not the guy he was in Houston. And, and I think in some ways subconsciously he is because he spent so much time in that Boston series making plays that were plays that guys would make if they were unsure of themselves like not going to the basket hard. He's not the athlete that he once was, but geez, I mean, I can't, I can't tell you the amount of drives that he just passed on to kick to open guys to a point where the Celtics, what they were doing, Howard, is they were playing him to pass. Think about that the guy that we talked about for years, wouldn't pass the ball enough. They were playing him to pass because they knew that he was going to be afraid to shoot the basketball. So I, I think that Harden has not proven to be the go-to type of guy in the playoffs. But I, I think that Nick Nurse has got a lot of pressure on him there and is expected to make some meaningful and significant changes to how that offense operates in playoff settings. Brian, uh, we cut last few days ago, Chris Stapps, Porzingis, and uh, Marcus Smart changed uniforms. Uh, I was a little surprised with, with Smart leaving the Celtics because, A, he's their best defender, uh, and, B, he's also... He can also knock down the open shot. But having said that, they needed to get big. Uh, and with Porzingis, they have gotten big, plus a guy who can shoot the three. So does this make the Celtics better, as good, or worse than they were? I think it makes them better. And I'll start by saying this. I love Marcus Smart. I, I love what he brings intangibly. Uh, he does so many things that don't show up on a stat sheet. He plays his backside off. Guys don't get away with a lot around him um, in terms of teammates not going hard. Like there's a lot of good things with Marcus Smart. He thinks he's a little bit better than he is. And I think that hurts you sometimes in late game situations where he thinks he's an equivalent with Tatum and Brown and he's just not. So I think that can hurt you. But I do think they got better. You know, Howard, when you hear personnel executives, lead personnel executives and organizations in press conferences after they make deals, I don't pay very much attention. Because for the most part, they're going to, you know, listen, it's honeymoon time. They're going to tell you how wonderful it was, what a great move they just made, how much I think it's going to help the team. You know, we've heard it all before. But Brad Stevens did say something in his press availability that I think was relevant, that we needed to balance the roster. And that's a big thing. Too many times Joe Mazzola was put in a spot where to have his best players on the floor of the five guys that he thought had played the best in a particular game, he was forced to go really small because sometimes three of those guys were smart, white and Brogdon. And you have a lot of depth at those guard spots and there were not enough minutes to go around for all three of those players. So here you make a decision to move on from Marcus smart and bring in Porzingis, you know, plus they, there was two first round picks involved, right. which is no joke. And again, one, they traded out of the draft to get into set a couple set bunch of second round picks. Um, but nonetheless, from a value standpoint, asset wise, I thought they did very well. Here's another very key element to trading Marcus smart. And I say this with all due respect to Marcus smart, Joe Missoula is going to be able to coach this team in his own way, a lot better without Marcus smart there. 
Marcus Smart did what he wanted to do. And and Missoula didn't have as a 34-year-old head coach that was brought in from the second row. He did not have the type of juice that he needed in that locker room to be able to take charge. Now he's got two very strong assistants in Sam Cassell and Charles Lee that could help him get his agenda done. The most vocal leader and, and the most rebellious leader that he had there in Marcus Smart's gone, not there anymore. That Missoula can fill that leadership void and kind of do things his way. Brad Stevens very committed to Joe Missoula. Listen, he hired him for last year. He was not the right choice to bring a team to an NBA title. But Brad Stevens thinks that he is. A big part of the reason that they got rid of Smart was to make Missoula's job easier. Hmm. Now, will that work? We'll see what happens. But I think that played a role in being able to move on from Marcus Smart. Now, Smart will be fantastic in Memphis. He's exactly what they need there. He's serious about basketball. And there's too many, too much nonsense and extracurricular stuff that goes on in Memphis that distracts from, from the larger object and reason why they're there. And I think that Smart will be a guy that narrows the focus of a lot of these young guys in ways that these guys aren't used to. And I think Memphis needs a dose of that. But I would say this, bringing Marcus Smart and also puts Taylor Jenkins uh, – on the clock a little bit, because I, I think one of the guys that skates in this whole Memphis thing is Taylor Jenkins. I think, it, you know, him not having a heavier hand has allowed, you know, several situations there, whether it's Dylan Brooks, John Moran, um, to get out of control. And I think, you know, Jenkins having a heavier hand would have been a better situation there. If he's not going to have a heavier hand and Marcus Smart is there, Marcus Smart is not beyond calling coaches to the carpet. Hence what I just said about Joe Mazzola. He's uh, Brian Geltzeiler, Sirius XM NBA radio I talked to my old partner, Cedric Maxwell, the other day uh, after the smart trade. Uh, he had no problem with it. He said, well, among the things it does for the Celtics, it opens up more playing time for Derek White. Uh, yep. And he was in favor of that. Plus, they got bigger. Uh, and I said, well, how much of, let's say, the Miami series, where, I mean, they're down 0-3 and losing games in Boston. Then they come back, win three in a row. And then lose not only lose game seven in Boston, but get blown out by 19 points. I mean, th did that shock the city? He goes, you have no idea. It was like they found out that Larry Bird never played here. You know, it's it, it was very, it was disturbing the Celtic fans. Then we bring in, there was conversation about Jalen Brown maybe going elsewhere. That to me is hard to fathom, given how dynamic he and Jason Tatum are together. Well, all right, so a couple things to unpack here. First of all, I totally agree about Derek White. Um, I had him as a first-team all-NBA all defense guy this year. I thought he was that good and really had a fantastic year, and there's just so much skill set-wise that is repetitive that him and Smart do. So, you know, choosing one over the other is was the right idea. Again, Smart got you a tremendous amount of value with that contract. Porzingis in two first, that's amazing value for him. So I, I agree with, with uh, Cornbread. I like the deal. Um, the Jalen Brown thing is still going to pay Jalen Brown, and they should pay Jalen Brown. Jalen Brown has a turnover issue. And, and, you know, some of it is between his ears. Uh, a small part of it was a thumb injury that he played in the playoffs with that they kept wrapping the thumb. Um, but Brown doesn't, you know, Brown tries to dribble through too many double teams. He's not the ball handler he thinks he is. And, you also start to wonder at the age of 26, 27, is that something he will improve on going forward? You would think that he would, but who the hell knows? Who knows? Um, with that said, this is too good a pairing. This is how teams are trying to build with guys like Tatum and Brown together, and you have it. 
and you can't let it, you're the Boston Celtics with all these banners and the rafters. You can't let it go because you're not willing to step up financially. You have to be willing to step up financially. But what's going to happen is other guys are going to fall by the wayside. And one of the reasons they go and they grab picks and they grab, you know, even trading down into seconds is to get more bites at the apple to replace Al Horford when his contract expires, because you're not going to be replacing him with a similarly priced player. You just can't. That second apron of in this new CBA, that second luxury tax apron looms as a hard cap. And everybody's up against it and everybody's dealing with it. But where do you save money? You don't save money with Brown and Tatum. You save money with the guys on the fringes. Try to get them in competitive contracts. So this is a unique year for the Boston Celtics, which is why, again, I'm a little surprised that he brought Joe Mazzulla back. I might have brought in a more experienced coach hmm. to be able to, to kind of do what, what we need him to do uh, and, and have somebody that could take this team to a title. Because after this year, they're going to have some financial issues there. I, I think that, you know, they may end up choosing White over Brogdon in the end and trying to sign Peyton Pritchard to a competitive deal to play behind White. This is the last year of significant amounts of Celtics depth. They're going to be faced with the same financial realities as everybody else. Don't get me wrong. I don't blame them. This is how you do it. It's a Stars League. Jalen Brown's a star. But Brown's going to need to make some improvements. And then really Brad Stevens is going to be challenged here to see what he can do as a personnel executive when all of a sudden around Tatum and Brown, there's not oodles of money to spend. I want to backtrack to what you, you brought up a name earlier, Damian Lillard. Um, well, he's going here, he's going there, he's going everywhere. He's staying in Portland. I, I don't know how that's going to work out. But one of the teams he's been linked to is the Miami Heat. I mean, you put Damian Lillard with Jimmy Buckets and Adebayo, you got a hell of a title contender. Yes, you do. Um, and I and I think that's where Lillard would like to go, and I think that's a team would like to have him. But the Portland Trailblazers factor into that too, Howard. And, you know, when you look at what Miami can give them, essentially you're looking at Tyler Hero, some cap filler, and two unprotected first-round picks, and a handful of swaps. Don't you want, don't you want more for Damian Lillard? I would. The team that can give everything Portland would want for Damian Lillard is the New York Knicks, and they don't want him. And I don't blame them because I Lillard's going to be 33 in less than a month. Jalen Brunson's 27 years old. You just you don't do it. You don't do it. That's it. Brunson is going to be there for a long time and be a core member of this group. Beyond that, that's what Miami has to give. Brooklyn's an interesting team with Damian Lillard because Brooklyn's got expiring salaries. Um, Believe it or not, we're at a point now with Ben Simmons only has two years left on his deal. If you're Portland, that's worth a shot. They have all the picks. They have swaps from Phoenix. They have, you know, Brooklyn's got a lot to give. And maybe it's a guy like Cam Johnson. Listen, if I'm Portland, I want Nick Claxton, but I can't imagine Claxton goes anywhere. I can't imagine Mikhail Bridges goes anywhere. But if you can do it with Cam Johnson, some of these pieces and all the picks, and maybe a Cam Thomas, you know, some of your young guys that you have there that you, you do that with. Yeah, I think Brooklyn's a viable place for him. But what has to happen first is – Portland and Damian Lillard have to make the decision to part ways. I'm a little bit surprised that that decision hasn't been made yet. And I think ultimately Damian Lillard is trying very hard to be fair to the Blazers, which I, which is says a lot about him because he's been there for a long time. He feels an obligation to the organization. He feels an obligation to the fans. And, and I think that that's really, really, it's, it's noble and it's to be admired. Um, but I think what surprises me about this is the Blazers aren't seeing the forest from the trees and that 
get a haul for Damian Lillard. Go get a haul for him because you will be able to springboard a rebuild faster than you can otherwise. Look at what the Warriors just tried to do, straddling the line between two eras. They've essentially punted on it. We'll see how much they've punted on it coming into this offseason with Kaminga and Moody and, and see what happens there. But it's a hard thing to do. They already sent James Wiseman out for a guy in Gary Payton that was essentially a rental. I mean, they, that was Wiseman at the lowest of his value. If you're Portland, like, and the thing is for Golden State, they can try to get away with it because they have Curry Clay, uh, you know, Wiggins and Draymond Green. You don't have that if you're Portland. You have Damian Lillard. That's it. You have all these young guys, but these young guys are going to take some time for them to help you, whether it's Scoot Henderson, Anthony Simon, Shaden Sharp. So I just think for Portland, like the hanging on to Dame thing and trying to improve the roster. And oh, by the way, we're not trading Sharp and we're not trading Scoot. So we're going to try to use Anthony Simons to improve this roster. I just don't know if that's enough. And do you really want to be trading future first when ultimately in the end you may have to trade Lillard anyway? Like, so to me, if I'm Portland, his value is never going to be higher right now. You have two teams that are hot on him. One has more to give than the other. But Lillard's made it clear publicly that he has no problem going to Brooklyn. And I think when you look at the big picture here for Portland, moving on from Damian Lillard makes sense for them. I'm just kind of surprised that they're holding on to this rope as long as they are. And I kind of feel like if they have Lillard in agreement that I'm okay and ready to go elsewhere, I don't know why they don't just say, hey, you know what, we're going to go forward and do this. Now, in all fairness, they may have already decided that and they're keeping it under the wraps right now for leverage purposes because Lillard's relationship with them is one that would have them work with him. Dame doesn't have to go public with this. And maybe we don't hear about trade negotiations till they're well down the road. So there's a lot of different pieces that could be in place here. With all that said, Howard, I'd be surprised that we look, look up in a month and Damian Lillard is still in the Portland Trailblazers. Let me ask you about uh, the acquisition of uh, Chris Paul. Uh, he's a franchise at Golden State that is not getting any younger. And, and that's got to be of concern in terms of the priorities. So does Chris Paul fit in? Look, Chris Paul's going to fit in anywhere. The question is, you know, we, we kind of think Draymond Green's staying home, don't we? I, Draymond, I think Draymond's going to stay there. I, th- I think that there's an understanding there. Draymond, I think Draymond wants to step out into free agency just to see if somebody bowls him over. So you can go back to the Warriors and potentially say, hey, you got to come closer to this number. I think that's kind of what this is all about. But I think he's likely to stay where he is. And, you know, I'd be surprised if Chris Paul doesn't start the season on the Warriors. You know, keep in mind, he still could be moved. Understand that that deal doesn't go final till after the, the league calendar year turns over, which happens on July 1st, which means the Warriors do have a window here to invite a third team in that would take Chris Paul and, you know, potentially a young asset for another upgraded player. The problem the Warriors have is I come back to this dreaded second apron. They're way into the luxury tax. They're paying repeater penalties. Paul's expiring contract at the end of this year gives them options if they don't want to necessarily keep going with this core or don't want to necessarily continue to try to compete for titles because maybe the window is closing fast on them. But with Paul there, they have an opportunity using him as six man to really do something significant this year. The beautiful part about Chris Paul and the Warriors you don't need him to play 70 games, right? You need him to play 50 to 55 games and be healthy for the playoffs. And he give you know, one of the biggest issues for the Warriors has been their minutes with Steph Curry off the floor offensively. They just haven't been good. And I've been good for years. Chris Paul solves a lot of that problem. I know for people talk about pace and tempo, the Warriors play a little slower 
than you think. Like he'll fit fine there. He's a really good basketball player. He's a really smart basketball player. Personality wise, do you have some concerns? Maybe a little bit, but you're walking into an established culture and established locker room. And the one guy that tried to shake up that culture and shake up that locker room got punched in the face in training camp last year and is now in the Washington Wizards in Jordan Poole. Mm-hmm. But I, I would tell you this, trading Poole was something they needed to do because that was a really big mistake to sign him to that contract extension. Paul gives them the financial relief that they need. I think he's going to be good there. And I think the Warriors, best thing that could have happened to the Warriors, besides this pool trade for Chris Paul, which is going to help be better for them this year and help them more in the future, is the fact that they ended up out in the second round. And that pretty much by the second week of May, they were home. That extra month of basketball can wear veteran teams down. A little bit of an early ending to this season, if you weren't going to win a title, helps you next year. We've seen it a lot in the past. It's just, you know, playing into into the second, third week of June wears on veteran players when it comes to a quick turnaround to start in the season by the third week of October. Here in this situation, being done in May, getting an extra month of rest, I think is going to be very meaningful to older legs like Curry, Clay, and Draymond. Let me ask you this. The Denver Nuggets not only won the NBA championship, but they looked invincible. Uh, and you look at Jokic, the way that he plays, and he's unguardable. And then you throw in Murray, and you look at this Denver team, and you say, well, okay, they could win it again this year. Uh, who can possibly beat them? Uh, is there anybody currently constructed that you would say, first of all, out of the West, that can compete with the Denver Nuggets? Sure. Listen, I think Nuggets are terrific. And, and I think the way they built this team, it's a very complete team. I picked them to go to the finals before the season began. Love this team. Love how they're built. Love how the team has taken on Jokic's personality. And, and listen, a, Tim Conley put a really good team together. The three very key moves for Calvin Booth, you know, the Caldwell Pope trade, the Bruce Brown signing, which, by the way, if you're over the second apron, you don't get a signing like Bruce Brown. Right. And that's why a lot of teams are treating it as a hard cap, because Brown is the kind of guy that's a difference between winning and not winning. That's what he was able to do for you. And even their first round pick, Christian Braun, who was a Brown, who's terrific, absolutely outstanding in the NBA finals. So it, there's no doubt they're a really good team. But could Phoenix pull it together with their big four? And if they can put get some guys on minimum salaries that fit well, could Phoenix be better than them? It's absolutely possible. Could Golden State with Chris Paul, if they stay healthy the large part of the season and have a healthy playoff, could they be better than the Nuggets? They definitely could. You know, the Clippers have never stayed healthy. And I know we hear a lot of talk about Paul George. This is more Lawrence Frank gauging the market for Paul George to see if somebody will bowl him over uh, as opposed to just really meaningfully wanting to trade Paul George. But the Clippers are as talented as anybody. If they hit the playoffs, you know, by some slim chance to be totally healthy, they could beat the Nuggets. As great as the Nuggets have looked, it's not a fate of complete. The Nuggets go back to the finals. It just isn't. And, and you know, they only played eight and, you know, you, sometimes you got to go a little bit deeper and I think you'll see a little bit of fatigue there. You know, Jokic isn't going to play this summer. He's going to relax a little bit. You know, same with Jamal Murray. It's listen, they're going to be the odds on favorite, Howard. There's no doubt. But let's understand the the whole tone and tenor of how the NBA works. And I'll bring you back to 2021 where the Bucks and the Suns went to the finals. You know what? It was tough for those two teams to run it back the following year just because the Bucs ended up with a Middleton injury, hurts them in a Boston series. Phoenix kind of implodes against Dallas, a team that they were definitely more talented than, and, you know, loses a game, gets blown out in a game seven at home. 
Like it's it, these things can go bad quick, especially when the, the margins in terms of talent versus one team to the next are pretty slim. And that's kind of where we're at here with Denver. Denver's fantastic. They're terrific. But I just gave you three teams in a league totally healthy that are just as talented as the Nuggets. Three teams in the West totally healthy, just as talented as the Nuggets. We can talk about the East also with Boston and Milwaukee. And Milwaukee could be in flux here with free agency with Middleton and Lopez both being free agents. But Boston got better here. Milwaukee. And let's see what Philadelphia does. Let's see what Miami does. Let's see what New York does. Like there's te- there's plenty of talented teams out there that can, you know, kind of narrow that margin with the Denver Nuggets that I, it's not a fait accompli. The Nuggets are back at this time next year where they are right now. I talked to Chris Marlowe, their TV voice uh, during the series. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I asked him about Michael Malone and I've known his dad for years. One of the funniest people I've ever been around. Always made me laugh any t- when he was with the Pistons under Chuck Daly. And Michael, during the Lakers series, it was like he got tired of hearing about the Lakers. And he didn't hide it. I mean, he, got, he said some pretty strong things during those press briefings. And then there's the finals. It was like the role Rodney Dangerfield thing. You know, he wasn't getting any respect. Well, I don't know if that was to encourage his players, to motivate his players. I think everybody's giving the Denver Nuggets a lot of respect now. Yeah, I think so. Listen, Michael, Michael Malone has always sometimes to a fault, frankly, tried to send messages to his team through the media. Mm. Um, he has called guys out for poor defense. He's called the team out for poor effort. Listen, he did it in the finals, you know, game two of the finals. They lost. He pretty much asked the question to the media. Why do I have to coach effort in the NBA finals? And, and so he has no problem doing that publicly. Michael is unapologetic. He's transparent. He's candid. And he's brilliant. So it's a very, very interesting combination media-wise when, when you see that and you get that. You know, it, it's just it, one of the things I, I love about Michael Malone is, you know, we see this and they stop doing it as much with coaches. Now they bring a player in sometimes, but these between-quarter interviews – when Michael Malone was doing it, he was literally the only coach in the league that actually gave you something. He gave you something. He didn't, you know, watch Joe Mazzullo do those. It's two word answers. Michael Malone actually took the time to answer the sideline reporter's questions and give you something. Michael does not have a lot to hide. He is a great coach. He's a basketball lifer. And we forget pretty quickly all the places that Michael Malone has been. He was unfairly fired in Sacramento. If you remember, they were playing great when he was the head coach in Sacramento and DeMarcus Cousins was their best player at the time. He gets, I, I want to say hepatitis or meningitis, like something like that. Mild case goes out for nine games. They go one and eight. Malone gets fired. Um, but if you're before that, you know, listen, he was LeBron's first stint in Cleveland. He was the, with Mike Brown there with LeBron. Um, he was Mark Jackson's lead assistant with the Golden State Warriors before Steve Kerr came in there. Michael's been everywhere and he's done a great job. He's widely respected. Listen, he's a West Orange, New Jersey guy, you know, went to Seton Hall Prep a couple of years behind me. Um, so we have that connection. But I've always been an enormous fan of Michael's work, love what he does now, and even how he handled this title. You know what? The brashness is he is authentic with him. It's it's who he is personality wise. And he never strays from that. And I think something like that is part of why he commands so much respect. My favorite thing I heard from Michael Malone along this playoff run was his his favorite part about the journey is the guys that he's on it with. Hmm. And he told this told the story about Jamal Murray, hmm. where 
when he was recovering from the knee injury, Jamal Murray came in and asked him, do you think I'll ever be the same? And he said, no, I think you're going to be better. I think you're going to be better than you ever were. And he ended up being 100% right about that. But that's the kind of stuff that Michael Malone does to engender confidence from his players. And there's a love back and forth, a tough love, a love that is not based on BS, a love that's not ass-kissing, Howard. A love that is, I'm going to keep it real with you, but I care about you. And I think that's, I, I to me right now, as it, when you, you want to build a perfect NBA coach right now, demeanor-wise, communication-wise, X's and O's, Michael Malone's is close to what we have to it. Before I let you go, as broadcasters, we always want to make sure that we pronounce players' names correctly. Because you don't want to look like an idiot. So practice this. Victor Wambanyama. Wembyama. Wembyama. How how yeah. excited are you to watch, to watch this kid? I can't wait. It's funny. So I I, I do occasionally. I join uh, my guy Mike Frances on his podcast on on, on the uh, Bet Rivers Network, and Mike's just gone to calling him Wemby, uh, which I which I love. But um, I can't listen. I, I'm very excited to see him play. I'm going to be out in Vegas for summer league, so I, I'll get an opportunity to check him out in person, which is really exciting. Um, I, I think he's going to be excellent, but I also think we have to understand who he is coming into the league. He's going to be different than any other rookie that we've seen in a couple of ways. Obviously, size-wise, that's, you know, a guy that his size and his athleticism is something that we've never seen before. So that's going to be different. But most rookies that we see, they'll come in and they can handle the offensive end of the NBA. Defense becomes hard for them. Wembyama is going to be the opposite, actually. You know, he only shot 28% from three for his French league team, the Metropolitan 92s. 28% is not a great number. Mm. Um, So the shooting is going to have to develop up a little bit um he's was able to do some things ball handling wise playing in the french league that he won't be able to do in the nba because guys hands are too quick guys steal from him his dribbles a little bit high because he's so tall these are offensive adjustments he's going to have to make where he's going to change everything from the moment he steps in the court is defensively he has unique defensive instincts he's got an eight foot wingspan and those are not just numbers, an eight-foot wingspan. And eight, here's what an eight-foot wingspan means. That means you can be a guard that thought you blew by Victor Wembayama and you don't see him because you think you went by him, and he's going to block his shot from behind you, yep. and you'll never feel him or know he's there. Yep. Like, that's the type of stuff that he can do. He's going – like, Anthony Davis is probably the only defender in this league – that can do this where he's so disruptive on the perimeter. He can block three pointers on the perimeter on a regular basis. When is going to be that, like he's going to be, he's going to be disruptive everywhere. He is defensively from the jump. He landed in the right place with the right people around them. If this is going to be, and listen, it's funny. I'm not going to say pop's going to be rejuvenated because pop never needed to be rejuvenated. He's been rejuvenated the whole time. Right. Uh, even when the team wasn't good, he loves coaching the young guys, but this is something for pop that the two of them are going to make that kind of connection. And, and I will also say this about Victor Wembeyama. forget about the player a minute. Just in watching how he handled the draft process last week, yeah. I was really impressed with the person. Yep. There's a, a an appreciation for all the adulation. Um, he seems very confident, very comfortable around people, very comfortable in interviews. But there's a humility to him, Howard, that I think is really, really special. And I think it's going to serve him very well when he, not if, when he meets some struggles in the NBA. Everybody meets struggles at a certain point in time in the NBA. Victor Wembayama is going to be no different, but he's going to handle them really well because that's kind of in his DNA. He's an incredibly, incredibly impressive young man. Yeah, I would agree with you about the way he handled things on draft night. You're right. 
so here we are talking basketball. And I went to sleep last night watching uh, Herman of the Yankees. And I said, well, I'll stay up until somebody gets a hit off or somebody gets a walk. I watched the whole damn thing and I'm going, oh, my God, this guy, his last two albums, he'd given up 15 runs. He was terrible. And he throws a perfect game. Oh, you're not old enough to remember this, but I was a little boy and I came home from school, a little boy, put the TV on and it was 1956, October the 8th. And Don Larson was pitching a perfect game. And I watched the last batter, Dale Mitchell, the pinch hitter, strike out. And I just started to cry. I'm a little kid. You beat my Dodgers. I don't care about the perfect game. (laughs) Yeah, but it it was amazing. Amazing. You just taught me something. I understand. I'm not the biggest baseball guy in the world. I'm a Met fan that's quite unhappy with the current state of affairs with my ball club. Um, And I hate the Yankees with a passion. (laughs) Always have. Okay. I was raised that way. My father was a National League fan, a Willie Mays Giants guy. And when the Mets came to New York, we were National League baseball people um, my my whole life. But you just taught me something. I didn't even realize it was Herman. I thought the guy's name was German. So there you go. It's okay. spelled so, that way. It's spelt that it way. It is spelt that way. That's because right. I only I didn't I didn't watch the game. I didn't hear it. I did, I only read about it this morning. So, but uh, listen, and the Yankees haven't had a wonderful year either. No, um, spending a lot of time without Aaron Judge. So at least this is a kind of a shining light in their season. And maybe the dude who got banged around for 15 runs in his last two outings can build off this perfect game and and be you know a guy that the Yankees need very very badly behind behind Garrett Cole in that rotation because you know Yankees not only don't have enough good hitters they don't have enough good pitchers right now either to be able to make noise in the american league no you're right they're playing for the for a wild card that's pretty obvious with tampa bay being in their division but but with the mets i got the biggest kick out of steve cohen their owner uh you know who's yeah i I get what he was saying and he said all the right things as an owner uh, but stop talking about 17 games behind the braves that's not your target you're playing for a wild card spot and nothing more than that and Look, do they have the players to get it done? Yeah, I believe they do. So what is it going to take? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's they've got a lot of guys underachieving this year, right? I mean, and and where Buck's magic last year seemed to be terrific and work for them, it hasn't worked great. And, you know, the importance of Edwin Diaz cannot – Yep. be something that we that we just gloss over because you look at what happens when you plan a season for this guy to be your closer you lose him in what was really you know a fluky type of thing but a very bad break for the Mets and then you have to turn around and Robertson was supposed to be a setup guy and now he's closing and Adovino was supposed to set him up and now he's your main setup guy you really have no pitchers to get you to Adovino and Robertson and Adovino has you know been you know hot and cold for them um they're just their bullpen's very weak and then you're you know the starting pitching has been one big you know soup of meh like not really all that good. You're without Verlander for a time. You're asking an awful lot from Scherzer, you know, at 40 years old. And they just, and again, the contracts aren't long, so they can go out and be players in free agency again when those guys are done. But I, I don't know that the mix is what you need the mix to be. And I just don't know that they had necessarily have enough in their system to go add to it for this year. And maybe the decision Uncle Stevie's got to make is even if we're not going to punt on this year, we're going to kind of stay the course, look to reload it, and do some window dressing in the offseason with the knowledge that we'll have Edwin Diaz back. So sometimes I, I, I hear what you're saying about Cohen and he said all the right things. But I also I don't disagree with him that sometimes the 
best reaction is to not react at all and kind of let things revert to the mean. It's a 162 game season. It's a long season. Howard. Sure. So watching it all play out in front of you and then kind of making your decisions when you have time to reflect in the off season, I think, especially in baseball, maybe above any other sport because of the amount of games that you play kind of to me has to be the smartest approach. I have no issue with that. When I saw rumors that they were going to talk to Scherzer about waving his no trade and maybe trade Verlander, I, that did not make me happy just because if you're going to get great returns for those guys that can launch pad, you know, into contending in the next two to three years. Great. But you're supposed to be a contender now right. and you're not going to get wonderful returns for those two pitchers at their salaries in their forties. No, I, I feel comfortable enough telling you <clears throat> and don't, don't get mad, but I've been a Braves fan for a long time. You're uh, alive. Yeah. Well, when the Dodgers left Brooklyn, I vowed that I would never, I hope the Dodgers lose 162 games every year. I mean, they really upset me. I was a little kid. And so I started looking around for another team to root for, and I wouldn't root for the Yankees because they kicked our ass in the World Series more times than I can remember. So I'm looking at that Milwaukee. I like Hank Aaron. I like what I like. I like the way he plays the game. And, so, and while they were in Milwaukee, a guy from our neighborhood made their team. You might have heard of him, Joe Torrey. Ah, and there you so, go. Yeah, so when I would play baseball in the parade grounds in Brooklyn, I'd play my game and then go over to the main diamond, the Fenston diamond, and watch Joe and the Brooklyn Cadets play. Uh, and he had a tremendous team, but you knew that he was uh, uh, he was a major league player. It was just a matter of time. So he joins the team when his brother Frank was the first baseman. And I stayed at the Braves fan ever since, and I'm watching them now. They got seven guys in their team that are on pace to hit 25 home runs. That's extraordinary. Extraordinary. It's absolutely amazing. It really is. And it's funny you talk about Joe Torrey. He's represented by a very dear friend of mine. He had dinner with him last night in Vegas at Sinatra's at the Wind. My, my, my guy, Tim O'Neill from TKO, TKO Enterprises. Huh. But you talk about, listen, hearing your story about Hank Aram and following the Braves, it's like it's the purity of baseball that people always long for. I'll give you a quickie here. So my father was a college basketball player in 1945 to 1950 for Newark Rutgers. First player in Rutgers history to score over 1,000 points. And he got drafted into the Korean War, but because he could play basketball, they kept him stateside because all the forts back then would compete in basketball and baseball. Anyway, he was playing for Fort, and for Fort Eustis, Virginia. His coach, who was also the major, sent him to retrieve a baseball player from a fort in New Jersey with fake orders. And that baseball player was named Willie Mays, who was my father's absolute hero. Okay, my father was a huge giant fan, loved Willie Mays. Well, my father went and retrieved Willie Mays, and they spent eight hours together in a car driving from New Jersey down to Fort Eustis, Virginia. And one of the great stories my father tells about that journey was they stopped at a truck stop, and they got something to eat, and Willie Mays wanted to shoot a game of pool. And he pulled his own pool cue out of his pocket, you know, one of those that in a little case that you roll together, and asked my father how much you want to play for. And my father looked at him and said – he learned a lesson from his own father, which was that you never play a guy in pool for money that carries his own pool cue in his Absolutely. pocket. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I hated the Giants uh, when they were in New York because they, I was a Dodger fan. But yep. aside from that, I always thought that Willie Mays, even to this day, was the greatest baseball player I ever saw. You talk about a five-tool player, this guy was six. I mean, yep. he could, there was nothing he couldn't do. He, could hit, he couldn't do. He could hit for distance. He could hit for average. He could run the bases, field his position. He was a one-man threat. Uh, and yep. I always admired that. And I, 
you give me Junior Griffey all you want. Or Willie Mays is the greatest baseball player I ever saw. Yep. Yep. I, <laughs> I, I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. The best one, and I never saw him, the best one I ever saw was Barry Bonds. And I know people complain about steroids and all that, and it's all true. But you know what? That guy was phenomenal. No, no, no debate. No debate. But, uh, you know, the, Willie, Willie was <laughs> – Special before there was ever ever performance enhancing anything, we had Willie Mays. What one quick story, and I'm gonna let you go. My my yes, hero sir. all time growing up was Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson was my hero. I wore number 42 in my baseball uniform, I wore number 42 in my basketball uniform. He was my hero. Now I'm going to school at night, at college at night, and I'm working during the day in Manhattan, and I'm walking down 43rd Street in Manhattan. As I approach Lexington Avenue, where the Grand Central Station is, I turn the corner and coming towards me is this black man with a whole head of gray hair. So he stood out. And I went, oh, my God, that's Jackie Robinson. He was working for Chock Full of Nuts. He was an executive after his plane. Wow. Yeah. So he's, he turns the corner on Lexington, starts walking down 43rd. And I'm staring at him as he walks by me. And I went. You idiot. You have the chance to meet Jackie Robinson. I ran down the street. I said, excuse me, Mr. Robinson, you don't know me. I said, but you have been my hero since I'm a little boy as a baseball player. And I just wanted to shake your hand. He said, well, aren't you kind to come over to me? We stood there. I swear to you, Brian, for a half hour. He gave that me a, a half hour. Story. And he started, we talked about all of what he went through and the racism and all the things he went through. He was a great baseball player. He was a great football player. He could have been a track star. He was that good. Keep this in mind. He didn't come in the major leagues until he was 26 years old. Right. Yeah. So, I right. mean, so as we're leaving, he says, well, is there something you want me to sign? And I'm, I got, I got, I got nothing. I said, what? Right. wait a minute. I reached in my pocket, took out a dollar bill. He signed the dollar bill. It's in a glass enclosed case in my office at home. And it's one of the treasured things that I have in my life that I will never give away. I'm sure. I'm sure. And by the way, I bet you it's worth a whole lot more than a dollar bill these days, Howard. Maybe three or four. Maybe yeah, three I, or four. I would say so. But that's <laughs> something your kids your kids are going to have. You know oh, what I mean? That's a special, special thing. No, no question. Hey, always great talking to you, Brian. You stay you safe. You too, sir. We'll do it again soon. You do the same. Take care. You got it. Thanks. Bye-bye. He's Brian Geltziler of Sirius XM NBA Radio. Uh, I've been in the middle of writing a book for almost a year. And it's all based upon people and things that I've experienced primarily in my broadcasting career. Uh, most of it is positive, a couple of negative things. And there are five people that have crossed my life uh, in sports. Well, not in sports totally, but five people have crossed my life that have made an impact on me. Uh, Muhammad Ali. I met Muhammad Ali in 1970. Uh, and I wound up doing an interview with him uh, during a sickle cell anemia fundraiser in Trenton, New Jersey at Trenton High. It was 90 degrees and we were sitting fortunately in an air-conditioned trailer. And he he realized that I was new in the business. Uh, and he treated me with respect and I never forgot that. Chuck Daly, great world champion with Detroit. Uh, our paths crossed when I was broadcasting the New Jersey Nets games and he was the coach. Bill Parcells, while I was broadcasting, uh, the Jets games, and I knew Bill when he was the defensive coordinator with the Giants. We still remain uh, friends today. Uh, that was three. The great Pele. I uh, was involved with the Cosmos. 
during 1976 and 77, when Pelé was there in New York and brought soccer to this country. Uh, Pelé was a tremendous individual. And finally, a guy that had nothing to do with sports, but he was my wing commander when I was stationed in Tripoli, Libya at Wheelers Air Base. His name was Daniel James Jr., better known as Chappie James. He was one of the Tuskegee Airmen. He was a fighter pilot in uh, in Second World War, uh, I'm sorry, Korea and Vietnam, and had over 200 kills in the air as a fighter pilot. He was a colonel when he came over to Tripoli. Uh, we got to know each other. Uh, we remained friendly. Uh, when I left and he got his first star to become a, a black general, which was very rare. Uh, and I went to uh, McGuire Air Force Base to watch the ceremony. And he recognized me in the audience and made a big fuss. I never forgot Chappie. And then when he got his second star pinned on, my wife and I drove down to the Pentagon and watched him get his second star. And he gave us a private tour of the Pentagon, which today is a big thrill. Could you imagine walking through the halls of the Pentagon with a six foot four, 250 pound black general? And he's showing us where this is, where that is. And his wife, Dorothy, you'll never forget, knitted sweaters for my newborn baby. Uh, I went over to Tripoli when my wife was five months pregnant. Uh, when she was born, uh, I was still there, obviously. And Mrs. James, Dorothy James, uh, knitted some sweaters for my newborn baby. Never forgot that. So it's, 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 there's a lot more stories, and I'm going to get it down in the book, I promise. And hopefully you'll read it when it's published. Thanks again for your time. I'm Howard David. You stay safe.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.